Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello and welcome to an extended edition of Taekwondo Life Magazine's podcast, Taekwondo Life Magazine Live. My name is Mark Zorianis. I am the host, the editor-in-chief of Taekwondo Life Magazine and a third Don Black Belt. Many of you may know that I come from an Olympic family, meaning that my grandmaster, Y.H. Park, was with his brother, grandmaster, the late Hyun Hee Park, part of the originating and moving force towards recognition by the IOC of Taekwondo as an Olympic medal sport. And he was also the 1988 U.S. Olympic team coach. And my dojan comes from a proud Olympic tradition. In that vein, I'm joined today by U.S. Olympian, Taekwondo heavyweight, and true gentleman of martial arts spirit, as well as accomplished athlete, Stephen Lambden. Stephen's a lifelong martial artist. He is, among other things, the most accomplished male collegiate athlete in USAT history. He is the winner of a gold medal at the 2010 British Open. He's achieved medals in every Pan Am Taekwondo Championship that he's competed in. He was the 2007 National Collegiate Taekwondo Association Freshman Male Athlete of the Year. He was a USA Taekwondo Male Junior Athlete of the Year. He was the 2013 USA Taekwondo Male Athlete of the Year. He was the 2010 USA Male Athlete of the Year. He was a 2016 US Olympian. And the list goes on and on. I could do the entire show just reading his resume. But more importantly and more interestingly, let's hear from Stephen Lambden. So we are talking today with a 2016 Olympian and Taekwondo heavyweight. Stephen Lambden, and I am really thrilled to talk to him. Again, we had the opportunity to meet in the 100 days leading up to 2016 uh, days of Rio in in Times Square, and uh, we had a great conversation earlier. And um, Stephen, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I'm impressed that you remembered meeting me at the 100 days event. It's great. It was uh, for, for as a lover of the sport, and certainly as a, respecting me at the Olympic journey, it was it was a great honor for me. So I, I had um, mentioned to you that you know in 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 doing a little bit of homework on you, I see you've been in the sport for um, and the art for a long time. And you know one of the things that's interesting to me is we always percentage of people that that may walk into the dojang, but that that attrition is great. And you walked in by chance at five years or, or as a young boy, um, 
looking to experiment with it, and you've stayed with it uh, straight through. So can you give give a sense as to what what, what was the connection about it? What was the um, that that the, the thing about it that that has engaged you and 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 kept you involved in 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 the art for so long? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. Uh, uh, I, I'd say a couple of things. So first of all, and I, I know it's pretty trendy to say right now, just because of uh, organizations like CrossFit and stuff like that, but. Uh, Taekwondo provides this really interesting community in that whether you're just there for your workout, you're training for something, you're trying to get your black belt, you're just wanting to learn, you know, the latest Pumse, whatever it is, uh, you show up, everybody works hard, uh, you might fight one of your best friends, but it's like the second you're done fighting, you might end up all going out to a movie or something like that. Some of, some of my, uh, oldest and dearest friends are people that I've met and known since the beginning of me starting Taekwondo. And so it provides this really, uh, I guess, interesting uh, place to get community and friendship and uh, all these really rich avenues for uh, sharing this martial art and experience with other people. And then on, on top of it, my favorite part, particularly of the, the sports side of it, is the fact that it's very much a sport with real-time feedback in that you can work on something for six months and it's the Mike Tyson quote of, you know, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. It's like you go in having worked on something for forever and you either get this immediate feedback that, hey, that, that that's great, keep doing that, or, oh, this is a disaster. I need to completely change the game plan in between rounds. And so – uh, it's always fascinated me as an extremely, obviously physical, but an extremely high-level mental game of chess with extremely fast feedback. Absolutely, and that's great, and that's and 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 it's understandable. And I think that you know, it's uh, they always say in football, right? They play the game. That's why you play the game, right? Because you can do all the work in the, you know, you could sit and study film from now until tomorrow, and when you get into that that situation, you know something comes up that you didn't expect, and it's how you react to that 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 separates the the wheat from the chaff, I guess, so to speak. Right. So uh, we talked uh, earlier about your your accomplishments in, uh, on the collegiate circuit, and um, I, I, as the as uh, male athletes go, you are considered to be the most accomplished. Uh, Taekwondo collegiate athlete in the history of, of the USAT, and we've had talked about your uh, affinity for, uh, for for the college Taekwondo scene, and, and I really think that that was uh, something that was worth um, having our listeners hear a little bit more about. So, so if you could take some some time, you spoke so eloquently on it before, um, to to discuss that a little bit, I think it's really worthwhile. Yeah, uh, you know, I think I think. Uh, and, and rightfully so, a lot of credit uh, for developing athletes and developing Taekwondo in the country goes to organizations like USA Taekwondo and the AAU, you know, with junior teams, senior teams, stuff like that. And uh, credit that's rightfully deserved. I wouldn't take anything away from that. But I, I think kind of the unsung hero in the United States is the National Collegiate Taekwondo Association because – um, as a lot of gym owners and most of us know, uh, there tends to be a drop-off after high school because 
you know, uh, people go off to college like they should. And it's, um, you know, I, uh, there's a lot of us like me and Olympian Jackie Galloway that uh, maybe weren't necessarily ready for the Olympic level or the senior world championship level. And, but we were better than obviously a junior team. And so uh, the collegiate Taekwondo association is, I mean, for decades done wonders at not only providing uh, athletes a chance to get that international exposure and go to amazing events like World University Games, but it also, I, I think it's a major contributor to a lot of the success that I've had today because it provided me all these wonderful opportunities, not only for that international exposure, but to cut my teeth against, uh, frankly, the the same people that I would be fighting at a senior world championships. And so it's every year you were pretty much, uh, you, you know, you had your collegiate national event. So you were fighting people about the same level, about the same age. And then you know, it, like myself, if you were fortunate enough, you got to go on to a world university games. And so um, I, I, like I said, I, I don't think they get the credit that they deserve because you have people, you know, like Russell or like uh, Rex Hatfield, who have been working on the collegiate taekwondo experience for decades. And I mean, I owe that guy and the collegiate taekwondo association just a, a, a tremendous amount. So I'll always sing their praises. I, I I couldn't agree with you more, and I do think it is one of the underrepresented areas um, that we have. And and again, I think I had said to you that you know, in my statistical studies of looking at at you know, enrollment for Taekwondo, you know, there is a dramatic fall off from people's practice when they get to the collegiate age because many of them view it as being not uh, synergistic. They simply view it as, all right, well, now, you know, I'm I'm leaving my local dojang and so I'm going to go off to college. So, you know, I'm, and I'm very busy with that. I have no time for, for that particular. And, and they don't necessarily, uh, they're not necessarily there on a collegiate scholarship like football or other, you know, division one sports. So right. uh, I, 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 and I and I think that you know supporting the collegiate program will help to do to keep people in the sport, help to bring respectability, continued respectability to the sport, and help to to build up the uh, the you know the the, the taekwondo com- competitive class and and keep people training really for the remainder of their life because I do think a lot of people fall off and never return to it at that stage because it is hard to go back once you once you stop training. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I mean, it's one of those things, the number of people that I've met that tell me, oh, yeah, I used to do Taekwondo. And I ask, oh, you know, why'd you stop? And it seems like probably three fourths of the time it ends up being, oh, well, I had to go to college and blah, blah, blah. And it's, I mean, it's exactly like you said, if we can, I think if awareness about the collegiate program would increase, we'd have a, a, a much better, a much better retention rate overall. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, in your in going over your resume, and 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 I went over it and trying to 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 pick out some highlights, but it's all highlights. So that's that's and that's pretty cool. Um, and 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 I think it's 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 really an impressive resume. Um, I, I wanted to, to touch on a few, and you tell me if if you if you see these. I saw some significant to me milestones aside from the Olympics in the um, the 2010 British British Open. I think that that uh, for for many who view your um, your career and, the, and your successes, that that is that is one of those. I'd like you to talk a little bit about that, whether you agree or or not. And and your defeat of Mark Lopez as, as part of the uh, 
Olympic qualifier. Um, and and your your history, obviously your your history of success in in the Pan Am Games. So do you do you see those as being uh, significant career highlights? Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Or um, yeah, what are your I mean, absolutely. It's uh, beating. Uh, well, the, I, I'll start with the British Open. The, I, I definitely, you know, I had had quite a bit of international exposure at that point, but I was still, uh, for for lack of a better way to put it, uh, green whenever it came to major international competitions. And while they don't hold it anymore, uh, around the, between 2008 and like 2013, the British Open was by far the hardest open in the world. I mean, just everybody showed up to it. And so I showed up, um, not doubting my skills, but I think me and my coach had more of the mentality that it was an opportunity as opposed to uh, something that needed to be, you know, like, oh, well, we've got to win this. No, it was an opportunity. I was still young, still learning kind of a thing. Uh, and had a really rough draw. I had uh, had a, a eventual Olympian, uh, the opening round, Cho from, from the U.K., and then after that, a, a world medalist from Italy that I'd lost to two times before, uh, then a gold medalist in middleweight in my uh, semifinal, and then my final was against number one in the world. And so it was one of those, whenever I came out on top at the end of the day, it was uh, the experience that uh, sometimes it, uh, seeing makes it significantly easier to believe. I, I definitely had faith in my capabilities, but that was the first time that I kind of went, oh, hey, um, you know, maybe all of these crazy out there goals are actually possible. And so it was a kind of a turning point in my career. Um, as far as the two, two uh, the 2016 Olympic team trials, uh, that was a very interesting experience because, um, you know, I, I found out about a month, at, uh, a couple of months in advance that I knew I'd be fighting Mark Lopez and, uh, it, put, it put an interesting spin on things because it's somebody, Mark Lopez was somebody that, I mean, I have the DVDs still of all the world championships of he, Steve, and Diana competing at. And so uh, even though it was my weight division, and I mean, at that point I'd been on 20-something national teams, uh, I very much went into it with the mentality of being the underdog because, I mean, frankly – uh, the amount of experience he had at in in world championships alone, let alone his Olympic silver medal, uh, I might have had the weight advantage, but he he had been competing at you know an Olympic and world caliber level since before I even started the sport. So uh, I, I you know they could have put me in there against the green belt, and it would have been a it would have been a revolutionary experience for me just because. I mean, everybody wants to win an Olympic team trial, so it would have been influential no matter what. But to go in with that underdog mentality and essentially beat somebody that not only is amazingly talented and extremely successful, uh, but somebody that I watched growing up. So it was uh, it, it was one of those experiences that, like I said, it could have been anybody, but it made it – it was the icing on the cake that it was – somebody that I used to watch as a kid. I agree. And for anybody who's not that familiar with it, it really had the makings of, uh, you know, in combat sports, we, 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 we have this, this, um, while we love to see the combat, you know, there's always the drama of the backstory. And uh, right. I, I think in this, in this situation, you know, you being under the underdog and um, 
it, it having all of these dramatic uh, under, undertones that um, your your victory was really the makings of uh, of, of a, a, as much as, as you could have seen in any in, in any uh, in any theatrical um, telling of, of, of the story where somebody might turn around and go, wow, you know, maybe they maybe they overdid it a little bit. But, you know, truth is, is, is stranger <laughs> than fiction. So in this in this situation, it really I think it really, you know, as from the spectator's standpoint, uh, it was about as dramatic as it can get in, in, in the world of Taekwondo. Yeah, definitely made for a, a, a little bit of a nerve-wracking couple of months leading up to it. That's for sure. <laughs> sure, sure. So tell me about the, um, the, 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 the your 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 history a little bit uh, in terms of the Pan Am Games, and that has been a a, a source of uh, it's sort of been a sweet spot for you to, to so to speak. W- would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh... Well, uh, you know, the the Pan American competitions in general have always gone really well for not just team, not just myself, but for Team USA. Uh, as far as uh, the Senior Pan American Championships, uh, I think I've fought. I'd have to I'd have to check my record, but I think I've fought six or seven of them now, and I've uh, never failed to not make the medal stands, which is which is definitely a point of pride. But uh, in 2011, the Pan Am Games, which uh, as a lot, as you, as I'm sure you and a lot of people know, uh, it's every four years, whereas Pan Am Championships is every other year. Uh, the Pan Am Games was my first event, um, not only in a big stadium, like a, a stadium full of people, but uh, it, it was in Guadalajara, Mexico, and it was, uh, I, the polite way to put it would be a, an extremely hostile environment. Uh, I had to fight Mexico in quarterfinals to medal, and um, it was it was a growth experience in that uh, I'd never really been in a stadium full of people pulling against me before, and not 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 that they had anything against me specifically. It was just I was fighting Mexico, and so it was an sure. it was it was an experience that I've uh, relied on quite a few times when fighting host countries at other major events because. Uh, I mean, the president of Mexico showed up on the competition day. Uh, we had secret service, uh, from the state department with us because at one point there had been a bomb threat on the, on the venue because the president had shown up and, uh, just like I said, most hostile environment possible for a Taekwondo competition, but it was like the second the match was over, my quarterfinal match was over and I had made it into the medal rounds it was like the people completely flipped. And suddenly, now that I was no longer fighting their player, everybody was pulling for me. Everybody was cheering for me. Everybody was very nice, wanted pictures, stuff like that. So it was a, it was definitely my first crash course in not only dealing with the crowd, but uh, how quickly things can change for you. That's great. That's great. And, again, that's another – I think that your, um, your stories – um, have the have an essence of uh, dramatic flair to them that people don't fully understand and that you can't capture when you're watching just simply watching highlight clips. There's there's more backstory to them and that's and 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 that's probably you know that's one of the things that I think when you when you get to physically do the to- the circuit you know tournament circuit whether it be as a spectator or as a reporter or a, as an athlete you get a much better sense of it. Oh, for sure. It's 
it doesn't matter if you're in the ring, sitting in the chair, coaching, or sitting in the stands. It's if people leave, you know, stressed to the max, and they sleep for 18 hours afterwards. Sure, sure. Well, we are talking today with uh, Stephen Lambden, a 2016 U.S. Uh, Olympian, uh, Taekwondo heavyweight, accomplished martial artist, and uh, we are speaking to him uh, regarding his accomplished career and, among other things, the road to 2020 and the and the Tokyo Olympics. Even though the Olympics didn't go the way I wanted. Uh, the Brazilian that I fought opening round, uh, I had actually lost to by quite a large margin two two times before that. And, uh, so to go in and essentially be winning the match until the last five seconds, uh, while it was a heartbreaker, uh, I always tell people that you know if you go in focused on just getting a result, like oh, I want the only thing that matters to me is winning gold. Uh, it, it's an incredibly finite feeling because, sure. yeah, you get the gold, but the the joy of it fades really quickly. But when you go in focused on, you know what, I just want to have a good performance. I want to be better than I was yesterday. I want to be better than I was last time. Uh, just like the Olympics. Uh, I mean, I tell people I slept like a baby that night, even though uh, as the first reporter that walked up to me after the match said, uh, I lost on a quote-unquote Hail Mary. So... <laughs> It's, uh, you know, it's one of those things that's, that's very high up there for me just because true, it didn't work out the way I wanted. But like I said, I was very, very performance oriented. So, I mean, I didn't have any problem with it. Well, I I think all of these aspects of your personality speak to your um, success and accomplishment. And in looking at that and not getting ahead of ourselves, but in looking forward to 2020 Tokyo, what do you think in self-reflection makes you more prepared than you were, let's say, for 2016? Or or do you feel that, that you're as prepared as you were for 2016? What's changed in, in the post-2016 world for Stephen Landon? Yeah, uh, well, first of all, I, I need to have you follow me around with these compliments. You you make me feel better <laughs> about myself. <laughs> but, uh, uh, my, my pleasure, and they're all well-deserved. Oh, I appreciate it. The uh, you're you're way too kind. But uh, I, what I what I what I like to think about uh, as far as post 2016, uh, I would say, uh, well, you know, at that point at 2016, I had already been on you know 20 some odd national teams, you know, multiple world championships, all of this stuff. Uh, but with how you know the world ranking system has evolved, how the game has changed because of electronics. Uh, the sure. phrase me and my coach tend to use, you know, post 2016 going into Tokyo is that the difference is now I'm I'm much more battle hardened in that uh, I was that experienced going into the 2016 Olympics, but the Olympics is a whole different breed of animal. Uh, the amount of pressure, the the press, you know, the exposure, it's. Um, I get it because when I talked to previous Olympians, they all kind of warned me that, hey, like, I know you've been around the block. This isn't going to be like anything you've experienced. And so uh, it, it's it's understandable why a lot of first-time Olympians have serious troubles competing there because it's just so outrageous and over the top and more than what you expected. And I think that's a tremendous advantage going into 2020 because not only now have I experienced it and I kind of 
I have a much uh, more robust knowledge of what to expect, but at the same time, uh, it's, I've literally had the Olympics go as bad as it can possibly go. So it's one of those things. It's not like I can have it, you know, and I, I, I came out, uh, I think with a pretty healthy view on it. So at the end of the day, uh, it's literally, I just want to go and, you know, like I said, be better than I was yesterday. And that's the whole goal. That, that's, that's, I think that, that that level of personal incremental um, benchmarks is, is what, what helps us, right, to be, to be better. Right? We, set our, we set our goals reasonably to be the best that we can be and, and hope that, 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 that on any given day that, that, is, uh, that that's enough to, to accomplish our goal. So. Right. Um, now let me ask you, because you, you, listen, we always represent ourselves, and we represent our dojangs, and we represent our state, and you've represented the Olympics. The Olympics isn't the only place that you've represented the U.S. per se. But do you feel, in, in speaking to other athletes, do you, do you, did you feel uh, a, a special burden, a special privilege to be not just representing yourself but to, and your family, but to be representing your country in the 2016 Olympics? Is it, was it something that was palpable or was it something that was n- not as in the, in the matches themselves? Um, was it something that, that, you, that, you, that you were conscious of? Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a quick, a super quick two-part answer to it. I'll try not to try not to ramble too much, but uh, we we have an expression in the in, in USOPA, the U.S. Olympic and Paralympian Association, uh, that you know, once an Olympian, always an Olympian. And so, going into it, I think like a lot of people, I had this expectation that when I qualify for the Olympics, you know, oh, it's going to be this transformative experience and like I said, I have plenty of faith in my capability, but it was always the, oh, well, one day when I'm an Olympian, dot, dot, dot. And so one of the most underwhelming experiences was actually qualifying for the Olympics in the Pan-American region because, you know, you're expecting this revolutionary experience that, oh, my God, I've become an Olympian. And uh, it, it's one of those things I tell people at seminars, anybody that wants to talk to me about it, that, uh, being an Olympian is very much a day-to-day attitude in that I've known plenty of people that have embodied the Olympic spirit far better than me that never got their shot at the Olympics. And so I've met tons of Olympians that just never got their opportunity. And so how I relate back to this is uh, just a quick side story. Back in 2000, I got to go to a seminar that was run by a couple of the Olympians that were going to the Sydney Olympics. And man, I was just, I was really excited because I looked up to these people. I'll obviously leave the names out, uh, but I looked up to these people and I just remembered not only did I not get to meet them, uh, the seminar was terrible. You know, I was a little kid and I remember leaving dissatisfied with it. And so one of the things that I've always said, and I'm a big believer in having a spirit of servitude, was that once I was an Olympian, Oh, like that's not going to be me. There will not be a single person that will come up to me that will ask for an autograph picture, just want to shake my hand that I'll say no to. Like, unless it's, Hey, I'm walking into the ring. Can you wait two minutes? So sure, the worst sure. case, they're going to get, a, they're going to get a, Hey, just give me, give me just a minute. But that was one of my goals that once I was an Olympian, I was going to go out of my way to be nice to people. And so, yes, I had, I, I definitely at the Olympics felt, uh, 
the gravity of the situation in that I was representing Team USA. But at the same time, more than anything, I felt uh, I, I, I felt called to be good to the to be good to the people that would not only never get the shot, but the kids that wanted the shot eventually. And so I felt more of a duty to I, I guess more of it for as as corny as it sounds, more of a duty to uh, the little guy in the sport than anything else. And that's who I wanted to perform well for. That doesn't sound corny at all. I think it actually sounds uh, inspiring, and I think that that's that that's that that's a sense of 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 you know it, it's the it's leading by uh, uh, example, right? In a matter of the difference between you know commanding and demanding respect, and I think that that's that that that's it's it's so important. So that's great. That that's a terrific. Uh, I I I appreciate your reflections on that, and I don't have obviously great opportunity to speak to too many Olympians, although probably more. Than, than some have, but uh, I, I, I always am interested in the perspective. Now, I, another issue that comes up quite a bit that, that I write about and we have an opportunity to talk about is you are someone who is very um, closely identified in the world of Taekwondo athletics, okay? Um, and, and the question of whether or not you and your contemporaries are martial artists, are you right. athletes? Are you all of those things? And I think it may vary from, from individual to individual and from training to training. But in terms of your overall training, uh, how do you, how do you um, reconcile all that? Do you consider yourself a, an athlete first or a martial artist first? Um, and and, and well, basically, how do you put all, all of that in, in perspective in terms of your, your own life and your own, and your own training? Yeah, uh, and that, that's a completely fair question. Uh, the well, so uh, to, to put it in perspective, um, I train with my coach in the mornings. Uh, at this point, I wear uniform pants and a t-shirt. Uh, I can't remember the last time I practiced my say, I'll just be honest. <laughs> okay, but, that's fair. That's that's fair. Oh uh, yeah. Well, but the. Uh, uh, I think there's this weird Taekwondo has this weird dichotomy of, Oh, you know, it's, it's like, there's always this argument of, Oh, is it a martial art? Is it, is it a sport? I would say, um, if anything, I'm definitely hyper specialized in the sport aspect of it. Like I said, I, I don't know my form anymore. And I'm a, I'm a fifth degree black belt and I don't know my form, but, uh, I think without that foundation of traditional Taekwondo, of the values of no, no, like we need integrity. Like what the way you do anything is the way you do everything. Uh, that definitely, I mean, that sets the pace and dictates everything that's going on in the sports side of it. And so, uh, I, I'll, I'll definitely admit to being hyper specialized in uh, a hyper specialized athlete. But I think fundamentally, just based on where Taekwondo comes from, you know, where it's been, where it's going. I think every single one of us were martial artists first, athlete second. I, I think that's a great. I think that's a great answer, and I think that that's Thank important. You. And I think that what you hit on is because I think all of us tend to gravitate towards things that we enjoy. Some tend to be pumse athletes. Um, right. Some tend to be, and, and they're not, and they never spar. Some tend to be more on the demonstration side. But I think what you hit on, which is really, really, I think, significant and leads itself and is sort of intertwined in the way that you do behave yourself, whether it's conscious or subconscious, is that foundation. And I agree with that. It's, it's, it's one of the things that I always loved about it is it's a foundation of respect and 
treating people with dignity and being um, blind to class and race and things of that nature. You're, you're sort of judged or most ideally judged based upon your ability to work, whether it be as an athlete or whether it be as a pumse or whether it be doing anything in, in the martial arts. So I think, sure. you, you know, your use of the term foundation is really something that I, that I agree with. And I think that that's, that it's, it's, it explains a lot. So thank you. And, and, um, you know, I know it's a touchy subject on the, because I think that it's, it's unfair for people that are not on the athletic side to, to sort of judge Taekwondo athletes in a way of saying, well, they're not martial artists, they're, they're athletes. I think that's, that, that in and of itself is, is as unfair as, as saying it the other way. So right. um, um, I think it's great. I, and I, I appreciate your, your honesty and your openness about it. Well, so, not, to use a, not to use a sports metaphor, but it's like whether you're the kicker, the quarterback, or a blocker, you know, at the end of the day, it's all football, right? So it's, you know, no, that's, different, different specialities, but, I mean, we all have the same – we all have that same foundation. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, 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 that's great. Now, I see that you're um, – I wanted to give, give you the opportunity to talk a little bit um, in, as we wind down. So I see that you do a lot of teaching, a lot of seminars, and a lot of appearances. Right. I know that um, – to some degree that comes out of um, the ability to, to sustain um, your, your ability to train, right. And be able to live at the same, at the same Correct. time. Um, but where can we um, find out more about that? And, and we'll link it all at the, at the end. Where can we find out more about that? What's up, what's recently upcoming um, that you want to mention anything, any highlights that you want to mention in terms of your, your lectures or how, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Right. Um, well, uh, I have a website that's, you know, www.stephenlambin.com, but the most, uh, the quickest and easiest way to get a rapid response from me is pretty much any social media. I'm at Stephen Lambin, one word, no crazy spellings or anything like that. I tried to make it uh, as easy as humanly possible. I know uh, uh, particularly these days it seems like uh, – Social media is moving faster and faster, and I'm just trying to keep up with it. But uh, I, I, post, I post all the time on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter where I'm going to be. And I, I think the upcoming ones, I'm going to be doing uh, a, a seminar in uh, the day of uh, the, the evening after the South Carolina State Championships coming up in uh, two weeks. And then the week after that, I'm going to be in Virginia. And then I've got a a couple of other things up in the air, but I, I try to make sure to post pretty regularly so people have the opportunity. That's great. That's great. And we'll, and we will, we'll, we'll link to all of that. Um, and awesome. we'll, we'll try to highlight uh, some of your upcoming, um, your, your upcoming seminars and, and things leading up to your, um, your, your competition. So I would say in, in looking at a number of things from your USAT bio um, uh, and I'm, and I want to swing back and ask you a, a quick couple of closing questions about that but one of the things that i found most telling is that in in all the martial arts interviews that i've ever done or ever read or ever heard generally they'll ask questions like what's your favorite movie and people say enter the dragon or best of the best right said old school which i love which is a great which is a great and 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 honest uh answer and and says a lot about your sense of humor is it still old school is that still your favorite movie uh, I'm, I'm I'm totally a movie buff, so this is one of those things. Uh, it depends on the time of day, the position of the moon, what genre. I can I I, I, I consider myself uh, to be 
I, I, I guess a little bit uh, crazy in the amount of movies I watch. Uh, old school is definitely still up there. Uh, <laughs> I, I, one of one of the things that uh, my parents kind of instilled in me from a very young age was that it doesn't matter if you're in competition, if you're super stressed out, whatever it is, like, you know, be good to people. Like, your personality shouldn't change just because you're under stress. And it's one of those, uh, I think I've stuck to that pretty well. And if you ask most people, my... My personality doesn't even change on competition day, so I, uh, you know, we all got into this because we enjoyed it, and I tend to try and stick to that. And so it's, yeah, I'm gonna be on. Don't get me wrong, I love Enter the Dragon. It's great, but right. uh, I'm more of a comedy man, and so that's great. Uh, that's I'll, I'll stick with those. <laughs> that's great. Let me ask you um, a, a question about the role of the USAT and the and the support of USA Taekwondo and, mm-hmm. and we have, they write a regular column or submit a regular column for us for the magazine. Um, what is, for those of us who don't fully understand or those of the, of the listeners, um, what is the role of USAT in an athlete, um, a Taekwondo athlete of your level, who's an, who's an Olympian? What is, what is the role that, that they play? Um, and, and how, how involved are you in the USA Taekwondo uh, organization, because I don't know that everybody fully understands, because there's so many different Taekwondo organizations, people may not fully understand that. Right. Um, so right now, I'm currently uh, the U.S. Olympic Committee Athlete Advisory Council representative for Taekwondo. So I'm actually on the board of directors for USA Taekwondo as an athlete representative, along with uh, a guy by name, a guy by a Pumse athlete by the name of Ron Southwick and. Uh, 2008 Olympic medalist Nia Abdullah. Um, so I would say uh, fundamentally the role of USA Taekwondo, whether it's a white belt that's just starting out in middle of nowhere, you know, Wisconsin, or, you know, me or Paige McPherson, that level, uh, fundamentally our goal is nurturing and promoting the growth of not just the sport, but the foundations that we talked about of Taekwondo itself across the country. So uh, not just focusing on, okay, we need to get Olympic medals, which is definitely a prime directive, so to speak, from the USOC, but uh, theoretically uh, creating an environment that is not only safe, but conducive to people enriching their lives, for lack of a better way to put it. That's great. That's great. That, that, that's that's very important, and I and um, I think that uh, people again. I think that there's so many um, organizations that people come across in in Taekwondo, whether it be on the athletic side or on the on the on the Pumse side or on the right. um, the Dojang side, that people don't always fully understand what the, the the individual roles that those play. So thank you for for clarifying that. I, I, I appreciate it. What would be in, in, in winding down, I would ask you if you were to, to take a young, uh, I know you have an opportunity to speak to young people all the time, but somebody who's young, excited, starting out in, in, in the, the martial arts, whether they had an Olympic dream or not, what would be your best piece of advice that you would give that, um, that individual? Oh, yeah, uh, uh, simple. It's, it's don't quit. Um, the number of people that were more athletic than me, more gifted, had a better understanding of the game, liked to fight, you know, the the number of people who just had it across the board above and beyond better than me uh, that just didn't stick it out. 
uh, is astonishing. And what I like to tell people getting started now is, hey, it's going to be hard. Um, at the end of the day, anything in this life that's worth accomplishing is difficult. And this is not an exception by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, if you go in performance-oriented, whether it's poomsay, demonstration, just getting your black belt, uh, whatever it is, if you go in, like, like we've talked about throughout this, with the goal of being better than you were yesterday, uh, when you're 90 years old, you're going to be able to look back and you're going to be really satisfied with your experience. If you go in, oh, if I don't win an Olympic gold medal, this was all a waste. Um, even if you win that Olympic gold medal, it's not going to make you happy. And so if you go in with the right priorities on what you're focused on and you just don't give up, you can literally – I tell people, if I made it to the Olympics, literally anybody can make it to the Olympics. So it's don't give up and have the right priorities, and everything's going to work out great. Well, your humility inspires me. So, Stephen oh, Linden, I want to thank you. I really want to thank you for talking to us today. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.